This week's Behind the Idea is about Alibaba, based on an article by Julian Lin. What is it that caught our eye about this article? I liked that he addressed a bear case. He doesn't ignore that there's a big, incredible short seller on the other side of him here. And in particular, what I like about what Julian did here is that he looks at that risk from his own perspective. He just says, I'm aware of this risk. I don't know exactly the scale of it, but it's a risk I'm willing to take. But there are still some unanswered questions about Alibaba that we did want to explore. For example, let's say we buy growth. I don't find that the... competitive factor is going to be a major issue. Like I I think it's easy to then once you get over valuation buy the rest of Alibaba's story and then everything I would care about is can I trust these numbers? And so I guess how do you get comfortable with that? That's the key question for this week's behind the idea. Welcome to Behind the Idea, where we break down investment ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to find out what makes analysis work. I'm Mike Taylor. And I'm Daniel Schwartzman. Today we're looking at Alibaba, the Chinese tech giant, ticker symbol BABA. Before we go further, Seeking Alpha is a website where investors around the world share their ideas and analysis. Neither Daniel nor I have any positions in any company discussed. Today's topic, Alibaba. Seeking Alpha author Julian Lin recently wrote up the company and why it is a conviction buy. And Alibaba is about as established as any Chinese tech company in the current market. Today's theme is, do questions about China need to be answered? Or is a stock in a foreign country worth taking on the merits of the growth story? So Daniel, what does Julian's article talk about? So Julian actually wrote two articles within the span of a week And I just wanted to quickly diverge there because he wrote the second article about Altbaba, A-A-B-A, ticker symbol, which is the shell of what's left from Yahoo. And I just, I don't actually want to go into that because it's, you know, there's some, it's more of a corporate governance or there there are other reasons to invest in Altbaba instead of Alibaba and anybody who's interested in the stock can look into them. But I just wanted to call it Altbaba. I wanted to There's call no... it Julian because he he said his titles were China has fallen, Alibaba is a conviction buy, and then Alibaba shareholders should sell and buy Altbaba in back-to-back weeks. And those Alt-Aba. are Altbaba, <laughs> no Baba. Altbaba, excuse me. You but just that's... you just like ran right past that, trying to help you, and you're just like Altbaba, Altbaba. Alt Daniel, Alt Abba, get that B out of there. Alt Abba. For, for some reason, it's Alibaba, but it's they, I don't know why. Alt Baba makes sense, it's, like it's, it's an alternative Baba. It's but a it's, co- cognitive dissonance, yeah. Because it's Alib apparently, or the two concepts in Alibaba is Alib and Abba. 
Ah, then you switch to Alt Abba. Let's get back. So Julian, you have some beef with Julian about well, these not two. beef, but just tone down the hot takes. You don't need to. You can't call a stock a conviction buy and then say sell a week later. It just doesn't even. In this case, he's still bullish on the stock, and it's not a literal fundamental change. But I just encourage you to be a little bit more measured in the titles. I think we all want to write a strong, compelling title, but that would be my my just take here. It's just easy on the hot takes. Yeah, and I've seen on Twitter people are doing a lot lately, like... Some commentator will say something and then they'll say something that seems like the opposite about two days later. People are on you about that now. So even if you have a good underlying story here, I think investment writers should be a little bit more careful about the kind of snipers that are out there who can take you down for things like this. Even, you know, matters of integrity, which I think is what Daniel is talking about. I'm just talking about self-preservation. Like... Don't don't flip your takes or even seem to flip your takes because you're going to get screenshot and put on Twitter and then people will blast you. So um, it's tough out there. It's tough. It's out there. tough in FinTwit. Yeah, I was talking to Quote the Raven uh, recently and we were talking about how neurotic that environment is, how backbiting everybody can be. So here's here's Julie. Let's go into his case. Julian's case is basically that Alibaba has sold off this year that. It has great growth in e-commerce sales. Its cloud computing business is strong. Its video business is strong. And so, as he puts it, we have seen that Baba has the marketplace platform of eBay, the e-commerce platform and cloud services of Amazon, and an online streaming presence like YouTube. And then he says there's actually more. They've got a lot of smaller investments. Ant Financial, a few other things that they're invested in. Weibo, they have a stake in. And so that is so they've got a really smooth running business. It's valued considerably, 47.5 times earnings, but it's also growing revenue 60% year over year. So even, you know, Amazon just reported, we're recording this right after Amazon reported, and Amazon's numbers are great, but. It is a little bit more mature, and it's not putting 60% year-over-year revenue growth on at this point. Baba has a clean balance sheet. It is a company, he says, trading, so 47 and a half times trailing earnings, I guess, 42 times forward earnings. And so, so yeah, that's basically his case. It's just, it's a straightforward, this is a strong company. It is an industry leader. I think that there has been a dip that is viable, and... I think that there is, I'm speaking for Julian, but I think that that, this is a conviction bias, he called it. And so you were the one who published this article, I believe, Mike. What did you, you you made it an editor's pick, I think. What did you like about it? We do a new thing where if we give an editor's pick, we let the author know why. So I actually wrote a note to Julian Lynn, letting him know. And my note said basically that I liked that he addressed a bear case. So Jim Chanos has voiced some accounting concerns about Alibaba. And Julian mentions this in the article. He takes that head on. He doesn't ignore that there's a big, incredible short seller on the other side of him here. And he makes an effort to look at potential accounting concerns, 
potential related party transactions or similar things that might be goosing the cash flow statement. So just in general, I appreciate when people will look at the other side and give some credit there and then explore their own independent assessment. And in particular, what I like about what Julian did here is that he he looks at that risk from his own perspective. He looks at the accounting and he doesn't go highly granular and set out to prove that there's a major issue here. He just says, I'm aware of this risk. I don't know exactly the scale of it, but it's a risk I'm willing to take. And I appreciated that. I think a lot of times as analysts and investors, we get obsessive about nailing down every last detail and proving why we're right about every detail of a story. And I appreciate when an author or investor will acknowledge a risk and say, there's uncertainty here. I haven't nailed this down, but I'm willing to take that risk. That's kind of in a way, I guess you could call it a dodge, but in another way, I think it's a more realistic approach. And, and so I, I'm respectful of people who are willing to acknowledge the limits of their, their own knowledge and show the guts to say, look, this is a risk I'm willing to take. Okay, that's it, because those, those are really the, that's what I think is the crux of this argument. Before we get into the risk, maybe, what do you think about, let, let's, let's assume that there wasn't any special risk involved and that this was, you know, subject to a competitive environment and yada, yada. But it, it was, people often call Alibaba not super accurately the Amazon of China, but it's a similar sort of, it is an e-commerce giant in China. It does cloud commuting. And then as Julian described, does other things. What do you think about the valuation of the company just as is before we get into the concerns? I have a mental benchmark of price to sales for tech companies that could be the next Facebook or Google. I actually use Facebook and Facebook tends to trade around 16 times sales. Maybe after the recent crash that's changed, but that's where it's been the last few times I've looked at it, somewhere in the 12 to 15 times sales range. So when I looked at Snapchat after it came public, I guess it must be more than a year ago now, maybe even several years. Yeah, definitely more than a year. It's like a year and a half. Yeah. They reported last summer. I remember because I did after the quiet period, I did a post about it. Anyway, so I was looking at Snapchat and I was like, Snapchat's not Facebook. They're not dominant in the way Facebook is dominant. They probably shouldn't have a sales multiple that's equal to Facebook's. And I think they were at a higher sales multiple than Facebook. The market was pricing in an even rosier sort of outcome or some kind of astronomical growth for Snapchat that would put it on par or even ahead of Facebook in terms of sales valuation. So here I am, I'm not an expert on tech companies and we've done a number of tech companies. We did Google and our brains sort of collapsed trying to value Google and we've done what else did we do recently? We blue screen of death our uh, value. Uh, well, Shopify. Shopify, Shopify yeah. which is another. So, but, so just to sort of admit that there is a market out there that values these companies. I use sales because I think the market looks at sales. And I think ultimately these, are, these tech companies are big gross margin 
stories and sales growth is a major part of the story and the kind of operating expenses that are often going to result in greater efficiencies later on. So I like sales multiples. I look at Alibaba here on the key statistics page on seekingalpha.com and I see 12 times sales, 13 times, 13, 13 times price of sales. If we're, if we take this just generic story and Julian's right in his assessment, basically that Alibaba is this phenomenal giant and has a dominant position in several key markets that the market values highly and that have a lot of strategic value, 13 times sales seems like, okay, is, is Alibaba potentially kind of a Facebook or a Google a dominant tech giant, I think that the story is there for that. So I'm not shocked by this valuation on sales. That said, I'm not sure that I would buy, but that's, I I can see what the market's thinking here. Anyway. Do you have, is there anything, is it just relative valuation that makes you say that range or is like, I think about this sometimes, and this is partly my relative naivete, but also I'm not running DCFs or whatever else, but when you think about multiples, for example, 15 times earnings, I guess what you're saying is that in 15 years, this company will earn enough to pay me back if they don't grow their earnings at all and there's a decent chance they grow. And I guess, I don't know if that's, that may be a very dumb way of thinking about it, but I I don't know how I would do that with sales. And so that's why I'm asking, is it just based on observation that the giants trade at that range or is there anything else to... 12 to 15 times sales for you. I'll go back to Snapchat since that was the last time I tried to use this kind of metric. So my the the first part of my answer in brief is it's more of a it's is a gut check about the market more than it's like me looking at trying to get the return that I want as an individual investor. Mm-hmm. For that, I I'm probably even dumber than you. I just like I want an earnings yield of 10%. That's like what I, I, that's like my hard cap. And so in this market, I'm heavy in cash because there's hardly anything that I find. I'm also a busy editor, not a busy analyst. So I don't find a lot of those opportunities out there. And I don't invest in growth stories, generally speaking. But for, but for, I was really interested in Snapchat when it IPO'd. I thought the story really was there. I thought and continue to think that that app is addictive and that it captures users' attention and interest in ways that Facebook doesn't. And so that at the time, especially, I believe that there was a real opportunity in Snapchat at the right price. So I just mentally said, okay, the market's never going to give me the earnings multiple that I want on this because Snapchat was lost $2 billion in a quarter or something insane when it first came out. So like that's a does not compute valuation multiple. But but if I'm going to try and justify this, how am I going to do it? And I said, okay, Snapchat probably is at best half of the growth story that Facebook is or half the half the risk adjusted growth story that Facebook is. So, and Snapchat generates sales. So let's just say Facebook's at 12, Snapchat should be at six times sales. And if you look, I mean, it'll never get there. It's been at 13 times sales ad infinitum. It'll ne- it probably never will get to six times sales. I'll never be able to buy it. But I think that you need to step outside of, 
I'm willing at least to consider stepping outside of that earnings driven valuation framework if I see a strategic story that I like or if I'm trying to talk myself into something like Snapchat, which has just been a, a firestorm as far as I can tell. So that's where it comes from. It's not my typical framework, but I like right. to use it so that I have some way of talking about these companies that makes some level of sense to me. It's not sophisticated, but it at least brings me into the conversation, which I think is something that's we we at least need to have some tool for that. Well, I just, because I, so for, when you talked about that, it reminded me of Professor DeModeran's distinction between price and value is you're sort of, you're identifying what the market pricing is. And I like that. I, I'm just thinking about t- two types of metrics that I think are fun, just sort of, some people take them seriously and that's how they invest, but like, PEG, the price to earnings growth ratio, is sort of yeah. just give me your earnings growth, give me your earnings. I don't, I'm trying to think through my head if uh, algebraically, if that would lead to, if there's some logic there, if it's just kind of a cute rule of thumb. Um, cute rule of thumb, I think. A CFA curriculum has like a little paragraph in it, not to go CFA on you, but here <laughs> but here we are. Uh <laughs> I, I'm CFA Institute charter holder, and Daniel is not. So keep that in mind while you're listening to this podcast. Bomb. Okay. <laughs> shout out to CFA Institute. It's their first podcast shout out probably in history. So there's a paragraph in there that says something along the lines of the PEG ratio is an interesting way of trying to capture the growth story in an investment opportunity but it's not there's a nonlinear relationship between price earnings and growth or between earnings and growth earnings power and growth meaning that a peg of you know 2 versus a peg of 1 it's not like that's a twice as expensive you can't really compute it that way which makes me think can you even do is there really a linear relationship between intrinsic value and price earnings it's a it's if you think of earnings yield it's kind of like i don't know what that would be like well, an that, inverse really i don't know that's um, what i was getting at earlier is that to me it i'm not saying this rigorously but i would think that earnings or cash flow ultimately adds up it you know the theory of owning oh. a share in a company is that you are going to you own a right to the cash flow, which will, or the earnings, which will go to you. And the other, the other sort of, which, that's sharp, Daniel. I'm gonna give you some credit. That's sharp. I like that. <laughs> it's tough. It's tough out here being a non-CFA. Being non- <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm really surprised. I'm shocked that you managed to formulate that thought. But um, <laughs> congratulations. It's a good one. Thank yeah, you. You'd really <laughs> coming from, and this comes from. A CFA Institute charter holder. <laughs> Can I get so, a cookie, please? Can I please I, get a cookie? I'll ship you one. All right, I'll shop for you for one for, on Alibaba. Let's get back to let's get okay. So so the so, other the other one, yeah. which I think is mathematically, I think there is some mathematical. In fact, I know there is connection is return on equity and price to book, and I mm-hmm. you, you know usually used for financials at this point. You don't value many other things on price to book, but for insurance companies, banks, et cetera. That's mm-hmm. kind of a, f- and so I do like those sorts of things. I'm just trying to 
back into this was a long way of backing into what do you do with revenue? Like you can't you can't say 60% growth so 60 times price of sales, but I wonder if that's there's probably some sort of I don't know. I mean, it, it kind of makes my head hurt because because I'm a little bit of, as a somebody who tends to also go more value oriented to even say, like, I know this is bad math and bad logic to say 60%. Well, if you have a price to earnings sales growth ratio or something like you could just you're kind of just making up numbers to try to justify. And that's where I get it that Alibaba is a leader. And I guess in Alibaba's case, they have more room for international expansion. I don't think they've done a ton outside of China. But yeah, I I think that's you. You sort of have to decide. Are you, you like take the integral of the S curve? <laughs> <laughs> I know <laughs> to it's, get something valid, or okay. would it be a derivative or integral? I'm not sure. But no, if you want to like linear, linearly add it up, maybe you would have to do something. I There's probably a way, right, to model it. And I'm sure um, the computers have done it faster than us anyhow, the algorithms. So, yeah, so I don't know. So I, I think, and I'm thinking about last week's episode with Shopify and just about there is, there's this sort of sore point where bulls will just stop and say this is too expensive and or excuse me, bears will say it's too expensive, I'm stopping, and bulls will say it's a dominant powerhouse that's growing fast. I There's some, like there is a way to tie back, even if you have a growth mindset to your investing or your growth investing mindset, it's a little different, you should be able to justify, I think, with numbers. I do think it does come down to numbers in the end. I don't, so I don't know with Alibaba, I, I guess I would need to see more and it's fine that Julian didn't get there in this article. But so even before we get to the other stuff, yeah, I don't know. The valuation, I get what you're saying. Like it's it's not crazy. I I also think, you know, this sort of soul, it's it's sold off this year. I looked, it's, it's more or less in line with the NASDAQ. I was thinking about this a lot with this week, Facebook reporting earnings and then Facebook diving and all the stories about how it's the biggest dollar loss in market cap value yeah. in a single day. Mm-hmm. But and Doing, I, yeah. I, I was surprised Facebook actually is flat or slightly down year to date. But if you told anybody after the Cambridge Analytica scandal broke that it was trading at 175 when we did our podcast was the Cambridge Analytica scandal, like they'd be totally happy. And mm-hmm. even if it's not great growth like there there's sort of and i think most investors who are really paying attention know this but i do think there's this sort of superficiality to the coverage there and so it's the same with alibaba it's like th- that's what valuation does is as right. much as we look at stock price charts and as much as we and i do it i'm not a technical analyst but i still will look at a chart and say ooh that looks bad without even yeah wait i want to jump in there cuz i want to i have a hot take for you Shoot I want. I want to. Okay. So, when we talk about quantitative strategies, which is something that I'm interested, sort of outside of my work at Seeking Alpha, the momentum is a fairly well documented phenomenon uh, that explains for out of sample price action. So, if a stock's been going up over a certain period of time, it tends to continue to go up over a next period of time. I think 
six month and one year momentum are both sort of factors that can help explain stock performance. So my theory as it relates to valuation of growth companies is actually that one of the better signals you can use to help you detect whether a stock is undervalued relative to its potential as a growth story is to look at momentum. And I guess we need to come back to share price momentum. We need to come back to what's the economic justification for that and what sort of investor mistake is being made that causes the market to gradually start to value the growth story. And man, this is a hot take. It's, a, <laughs> it's like a very like slowly warming up take. What I would say is, okay, there are value investors like us, or I guess that's how we describe ourselves, whatever, that don't go for this stuff. We just said, you know, I like a PE of 10 and Daniel likes a PE of 15 and we're stodgy and we don't like growth. We're looking to just wring value out of unattractive companies. If, if we're market participants, we're not properly pricing in these growth stories because we're basically ignoring them altogether. Maybe the market is relatively slow to react to an unfolding growth story and therefore initial uptick in share price for growth stocks is the indicator that the growth story will continue. Basically, technical analysis is the thing that is the most effective in capturing growth valuation. That's my hot take. Boom. You need technicals for growth. Technicals for growth. Well, I, I, it reminded me as you were saying that of something, I just quoted this in an article that I'm writing. I, and I, I apologize if I brought it up on the podcast before because I think it's, I've always, I, I'm, I've had the chance to talk to a lot of people over the years about how they use Seek Alpha, which is sort of a proxy for how they invest, right? How they extract information to then apply to their investing process. And one contributor I talked to said he just sits on the news feed on Seeking Alpha, and I'm exaggerating a little bit, but he said he just sits on the news feed and when an announcement comes out that says that a stock is going bankrupt, that's when he looks at it and if everything looks right, opens a short position because it never prices in the bankruptcy right away. There's always like this... It's almost as if the market's saying, oh, but maybe it'll pull it out or maybe this is whatever. And there's a lot of like easy bag money. holders. Yeah. It's the bag holder trade right there. And so, so we're the reverse bag holders. Yeah. In this situation. Exactly. Where, where the market is saying, look, dudes, this is going a lot higher. And we're like, no, 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 no. The market's like, look at this beautiful Hermes bag. It's worth like a million dollars. Louis Vuitton personally made this bag and we're refusing to hold the bag. We're like, no, we will never be bag holders. It doesn't matter whether the bag is encrusted in diamonds and it was, you know, Queen Victoria's bag when she met Fran Sir Francis Drake. Is that right? I, I, I think Queen Elizabeth. No, 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 I think no, we will never, Queen Elizabeth met Francis Drake. Okay, when, so. Queen, when Queen Victoria was visited by the ghost of Francis Drake, that was the bag that she, the ghost of Francis Drake gave to Queen Victoria. We still won't hold it because we're, we're reverse bag holders. We'll never bag hold no matter what. And so we're going to miss these momentum opportunities. I just, okay, so joking aside, we keep coming back to this idea that value, you know, 
Demodorin said this, and I'm starting to feel it, although, you know, maybe the market won't cooperate with this going forward, but certainly over the past several years, value has not been a great explainer of stock price action. It's underperformed. There are other factors that we need to take in. Maybe we need to also, we've talked about earnings quality before for Facebook. Maybe we need to talk about growth uh, as expressed through hot take momentum when we're looking at stuff because people do it. I don't know. There was a chart I saw. You see these things and I just haven't sat with the literature to verify what's true or not. I feel like I saw a chart on Twitter explaining that, arguing that 70% or something of companies share price growth can be tied back to revenue growth. Last week's call, one of our guests, Rami Tarabulsi, said that actually 70% of stock price movement is, or stock returns, equity investing returns are explained by dividends. I I don't know what, I I think there's probably, this is a fact that we can probably find somewhere. But yeah, I think it's, I think there's a way to do it that there's so many different ways to invest and it doesn't, what works for you doesn't work for me and vice versa. Like it's fine to have your own style. I do think there is a way, I do think revenue growth is important as we've talked about before, but you're still for over 40 times earnings. Like that's, that's a lot when you then get to the other big issue in the room as well, which is that can we trust the numbers? Can we trust what's going on with Alibaba? And Julian talked about Jim Chanos, who is quite good and has raised questions. I dumped a few different links into our notes from John Hempton had a thought-provoking blog a few years ago about that just sort of called into question some of the company's numbers. Um, there's this blog called Deep Throat IPO that has been covering it closely and has been skeptical. And I also jumped in a link. Ann Stevenson Yang, who is the founder of J Capital Research, wrote an article in Bloomberg arguing, essentially implying that the U.S. and China's regulation of securities fraud is weakening in the current environment. And she has come out arguing the short case for Alibaba in the past. And so like, there's all this stuff out there that's saying, I don't know if you can really trust the company. And I do hear what you're saying that Julian did tackle that. But let's say we take the blue pill or whatever and buy growth. Then if I buy growth, then I don't, I don't find that the com- competitive factor is going to be a major issue. Like I, I think it's easy to then once you get over valuation, buy the rest of Alibaba's story, and then everything I would care about is can I trust these numbers? And so I guess how do you get comfortable with that? Here's my initial reaction: the company is not being valued on earnings. Let's just say it's being valued on sales or gross margin or something like that. Do those bottom line numbers or do the cash flow numbers even really matter in the eyes of the market that much? That's one that's one thing. Okay, but there's obviously the slippery slope argument, or okay, there's, you know, 
the old wives tale about if there's one cockroach, there's a million cockroaches and management may be untrustworthy. Certainly China listings in the United States have had a problematic history over the past decade. The, okay, so that's one thing. It's just like the market's not valuing it that way. That's just one leg. Okay, the other leg is the behavior is observable. The user base is observable. You can't fake half a billion users of only one of Alibaba's business lines, right? You so you not to get too deep into Tesla, but a lot of the reason that it's been harder to buy the Tesla story is because you can't fake a car sale. And so there are all these critics and skeptics not to take one side or the other on Tesla. Just the reason that there are so many problems and there's so much back and forth on that story is because the car sales are so much in question because the observable world is not necessarily connecting to the optimistic valuation that the market's priced in. So my the avenue I think you could take, and I don't know where I sit on this with respect to Alibaba, I certainly have not done any sort of look at the financial statements with an eye to potential misstatements or misleading numbers or numbers that the market doesn't understand correctly. I'm just saying that you can double check the user base of Alibaba and you can double check the behavior and the customer relationships and the overall size of the market. And I think Julian is does a good job of, without going into much detail, he sort of establishes himself as someone who understands Alibaba's business operations in China. I think if you can credibly make the case that this is a business that's making the kinds of moves that a tech company needs to make to eventually become a profit powerhouse, that the accounting issues may ultimately not be as meaningful at this stage in the game. That's the argument. That's I don't endorse that because I realize as I'm saying it that it's a bag holder type of thing and we're in this market environment where whatever I'm rambling. The point is, I think there's a case you can make here where like the the real world customer behavior, the real world user behavior can justify your optimistic about the optimism about the business strategy. Are you can you buy that? Yeah, I think it's I think three things as you say all that which is one is to go back to the article like you said there's a commendation for admitting what you don't know and it's important to and this is again where i'll tease about the hot takes like it's again where it's important to not get stuck in and not get known as the alibaba guy or in Bill Ackman's case, the Chipotle guy or whatever else, like to be able to somehow maintain your intellect. Ackman is so many different guys at this point. <laughs> He's like seven or eight different guys since I started working at Seeking Alpha in four years. Ackman, I love you, buddy. 
still still welcome on the podcast still welcome on the podcast yeah definitely come on anytime (laughs) but anyway so it's good so if you can compartmentalize that and admit that you don't know but that it's not so much i think there's some cynical takes that will say something like even if you know nothing's going to happen they they might as well be cheating but as long as the the revenue is going up i don't care i don't think you have to be cynical but you can say i don't know but based on what i'm seeing i like everything else and i'm going to just accept that there's a risk that i don't know i think that's i think you're right about that i think about something we were saying last week or 2 weeks ago on man U, where you said something to the tune of Look, if you count, if you give them some credit for China, even if we don't quantify it, just acknowledge, give them some credit in their multiple for this potential opportunity, which is a very re- legitimate opportunity. I like that as an approach. And I had a third point that I can't remember. I will say that it would be worth, if it's a big enough risk, and I think a risk like this, I would want to get some comfort about. I think that's where you do more research. That's where we would love to talk to some of the skeptics on the company. We'd love to talk to some of the bulls on the company to hear further what's going on there. I think it's just an interesting valuation aside. I think that sort of case is interesting where there is an elephant in the room. And if you if you can prove that that risk is not a major threat, that's where if the market is giving it any credence, you can really take advantage and go against the market by buying shares bigly because the market will be proven wrong. But yeah, I don't know. But I want to, okay, so I just, okay, now I'm going to counter my counter real quick and say Jack Ma is Alibaba's CEO. Fact check. That's true. true. That's true. true. Jack Ma is the CEO of Alibaba. He's... A story CEO, I think he qualifies on the list that includes people like Elon Musk, Patrick Byrne of Overstock, others who talk to the market and who's, was I wrong about Overstock? Fact check, Overstock? I I think actually you may have been wrong about Jack Ma. I think he may just be the executive chairman right now. I think he's the co-founder, but he's not the CEO. Okay, fact check. Okay. The company is led in some measure by a man named Jack Ma, who is a story leader, in my opinion. He's, and do you dispute that he's kind of like an Elon Musk figure or someone who sort of has a charismatic engagement with the stock market and with investors? No, he would be somebody who, in the words of From Growth to Value last week, a visionary leader for the company. Right. So he's got that aura to him. And I think when you get into those, that's the type of leader who we often see the market seeming to fail, fail to discount or to overlook or to be slow to react to potential flags. I don't mean to imply that about any of the current managers that I've mentioned, but You can go back to scandals associated with Whirlpool or with Enron, Valiant, that there is a correlation between being a story CEO and carrying on a story that eventually is revealed to 
be deflated. You know, there is something to that. And so I want to just highlight that Jack Ma is one of those people without saying anything about the accounting. I honestly don't know anything about it for Alibaba's case. I just want to counter and say that this is the sort of danger area you get into when smart people are pointing to irregularities and the list that Daniel mentioned in addition to Chanos that Julian Lin mentioned in his article is that you do run this risk of it's it's tougher to say, okay, the market's just pricing that risk efficiently. And so that's where I would say I would not be comfortable overlooking these accounting concerns if I'm making my own investment decision here. But if we're just trying to understand how all these factors weight together, then I mean, the market's seen those things. It's a big risk and I wouldn't I would try and get it. I think it just throws it throws it in the too hard pile for me maybe in terms of my own personal decision making, but I understand how people could size it up and say I'm okay with it. Okay. Yeah, I think there's definitely more work to do in terms of figuring out what is the what is the story here? What what is cuz it shouldn't be that murky to figure out what the claims are, what Alibaba says in response, what what the market is expecting. And so I think that's where we might want to revisit this, but I yeah, think Yeah, yeah. I think Julian's there's also and we've talked about this a few times. There is a point where as long as you are sizing the risk and aware of it and weaving the intellectual caliber to to be able to change your mind as needed, it's okay at some point. I don't know if this is the case, but it's okay at some point to say, I'm not doing further work. Like I understand what the risk is. I also understand what the opportunities are and I'm comfortable with that and I'm going to keep my mind open, but I'm also, you know, in this case, for example, it would be not easy for us to go to China and invest, investigate on the ground and see whatever else is happening. Like that would be a high bar to our due diligence. And so I think in some cases you have to, you know, and I, and this is sort of a foreign thing in general. I, I own an Argentinian airport company and shares in it. And like I'm not as much as I would like to, I'm not going to Buenos Aires anytime soon to figure out what's going on. Like I do have to, at some point to say, look, I know there's going to be some risk. I hope that over the long term it will not be major risk. And if it, and size it appropriately in my portfolio. So, yeah. Yeah, there's always, right, I mean, this is just a fundamental phenomenon of the world. Acquiring information has a cost, and acquiring information has a benefit. And this is a tacit decision that every investor makes constantly, is at what point is the reward to searching for more information going to continue to outweigh the cost of searching for it? And... We live in an environment where it seems like so much information is free flowing that there's really the search for information is essentially free, but it's not really. And we all have lives to live. Uh, not everything is about investing for the future. We got to go out and have some fun. So, yeah, stop looking for accounting irregularities. It's fine. <laughs> it's not quite I, what we're saying. I, 
And no, no, we're not, right? But there is this, that is a dynamic that's important in all investment decisions. Okay, so one, I wanted to, now I have something that I wanted to bring up, which is the pricing efficiency issue that Julian raises. Because I think, he says that it's sold off and he attributes some of that, I think, to, yeah, trade war risk associated with China companies. And he, he sets that premise up, which you could debate, and then he debunks it by saying, Alibaba is basically entirely domestically focused. So international tensions with the United States are unlikely to affect the business operations. Fine, I like that. It's a neat rhetorical trick. He also says that China, I didn't know this, but it appears to be more or less true at least on the face of it, that Chinese investors are not able to invest in Alibaba because it's US listed. And I did just some quick Googling around and vetted that claim just slightly. And it seems like there's an article about how Alibaba plans to list in China eventually, but is not listed there. And another article that says that is difficult for investors in China to invest in internationally. So two questions that I have for you. The first is, do you believe that this dynamic is genuinely at play? And then second, do you believe that that would lead to a pricing inefficiency? So first, is it actually true that Chinese people can't invest in Alibaba? And second, if they could, would we see something different happening with the stock price? I don't know to the first question. I would think that if they have money abroad, they could invest just if there's some the, it was only one paragraph and I did not research this further, but I, I, I remember it sticking out. If you can't trade U.S. stocks in your Chinese brokerage and if you're not allowed to take your capital out of China, which I don't think is true, then in theory, yes, you would be stuck. But I imagine that people who are investing enough to be owning individual stocks in companies would be able to do this. So I, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm skeptical on the face of it, but this is a fact and I'm sure we could look a little bit further and find out the truth. I'm more skeptical that this will make a big difference. I'm trying to think there was, there was that, there was a Shanghai stock market what 2016 or 17 there was sort of the bubble and you saw all these pictures going around of people trading stocks everywhere and yeah again this is price versus value i guess there's some argument that if more people are available to buy that would boost the price but china alibaba is not suffering from access to capital and so any boost they get from liquidity of retail investors in China being able to buy shares to me seems neither here nor there. So I don't know. That was a little bit of a – I didn't quite understand how that was holding back the stock or anything like that. I liked the look at it. I liked that he looked at it. Yeah, I also am like I'm not fully on board with it. One, The Trump administration, for example – is aiming to clamp down on Chinese investment in U.S. firms. That's a headline that has come across my desk recently. It's like, I mean, we could get into like how real that problem is, but the qual there was a Qualcomm issue, some kind of issue with Qualcomm. Right. It seems like there's some ability to invest in the U.S. by some measure or other. So, yeah, and 
just a final, I think that the reason I brought all this up is because it's, I do think that there is some value, there is something to the story that there are international opportunities that are overlooked because of the location of investment capital and investment analysts you know new york and london and tokyo and major financial centers those people can't help but be exposed to only a certain number of opportunities that are more immediate in their sphere i buy that story that you know there probably are some interesting opportunities in nigeria or in peru or some other countries that are not getting the credit from the market that they might otherwise get. But I think that you need to be careful making that argument about one of the most followed companies in the world in the form of Alibaba. So I I just wanted to bring it up because I think it's it's cool to look at, but I'm not sure how to actually process the dynamic. Yeah, I think you nailed it. I think this is a huge company, so it's not like it's under the radar. I And I think it's more common that foreign capital is reluctant to invest in a local company than vice versa. And so. All right. So I ran out of my hot take machine is out of gas. How about you? How's your hot take? Are you, how's your uh, wind powered hot take machine? I don't I don't have any other. I, I think it was a good article. I don't, I don't know. It's, I guess what I'll end up with is what is the purpose of an article? Is it to persuade new people? Is it to bring new attention? I think people are aware of Alibaba and maybe what Julian does a nice job of is overcoming that. Cause I, as you were talking in your previous point, I was thinking that I still don't invest in OTC companies, even though I spend time abroad. I live abroad. I, like should be fine. I, I'm sophisticated enough to understand how OTCs work and I still screen them out and I still ignore them. And likewise, I don't do a lot with companies domiciled in Asia. Like, I don't know. I do still have that sort of timidity to how I approach things. And so where maybe the credit to Julian is he doesn't ignore the concerns that might come with the company being focused in China and whatever other accounting concerns or whatever else. And he translates this relatively well, uses some good analysis there. And so credit to him for that. I would encourage him to be a little bit more judicious in his titling in general. He's also Damn, the one you are hurting him <laughs> with that. Well, he's, he's oh, also man. the one who, who are, who made the wrote an article writing. Here's why I will never sell my Amazon shares, which Again, it's and Amazon just reported and had a great report and it's a great company, but it's just just something is yeah, I'm sorry to come off. I want to talk to you, Julian, so please that. come on the show. Please come on the show. Please um, do. I think you're right. Well, we come back to this time and again, or I come back to it time and again. Fat tailed distribution, right skewed distribution. He found a risk he's comfortable with, he's taken it. The goal is to get rich. That's what you got to do. You know, do due diligence and all that other stuff. Certainly, we we think that that's important and the analysis is important. But 
I think it gets down to the crux of, you know, the risk and opportunity. And it's just a sort of very bare knuckle. I see the risk and I'm going for it. And when you're transparent about those two elements, it's often a path to a successful article. If maybe not always a successful investment, but it'll it'll get you a, a long way towards at least articulating a thesis. So that's, you know, to defend my editor's pick and to give some praise to Julian here, that's what I, I liked about it is that, you know, it's a little gutty, which we want people to be analytical, but eventually you get down to the decision point. And I think that's where we got to here. And you can go either way. We'll have to learn more about this company though. I think what, my other takeaway is just, it's an, a fascinating China. Two China, two Chinas in a row, right? Man Yu and Alibaba. We had the we had Shopify while you were on vacation, but two two for us in a row. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. I'll go on vacation again. You guys can get another break from China. Okay, I do, we're probably good, huh? We're we're, we're good. We're Wait, limping in. We really are out of gas. We're gonna we're, we're, wind, we're gonna revisit this though. We're gonna get some. We're gonna get stock up with some big guests to kind of help us try to figure this out because i think baba is uh there's a lot more to figure out here yeah yeah whose tape machines are much more finely calibrated than our own we rely on other things besides heat like information (laughs) facts okay i think we're good daniel let's go that's good all right thanks mike take care Bye. bye thanks for listening to behind the idea as always i hope you enjoyed the episode We've got a few big episodes coming up, including a special cross-pod with a well-known podcaster next week, and follow-ups on recent episodes in weeks to come. Anything you want to hear from us? We now have a direct email address, btipod at seekingalpha.com, so contact us with any questions or feedback. You can follow us on Seeking Alpha under the Behind the Idea account, or on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, iTunes, and Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thanks for your support, and see you next week on Behind the Idea.